You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It is 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It is October 28th, 2021. And uh, what I thought we would talk about tonight is um, practice and organizing practice and uh, householderism and what that's like uh, and what then might be a long goal for practice or um, the um, one of the things that's uh, true about doing attachment work uh, and uh, the the organization of the the instructions that we do here are that uh, people who come to us tend to come to us um, as a uh, uh, um, I, I hate to say last resort, but an alternative resort to other things that they've tried in the past in order to uh, uh, deal with their attachment conditioning or their suffering might be just a better way to put it. Most of the time in the West, because uh, meditation is not uh, as widely spread uh, as it uh, is in uh, countries where uh, Buddhism is the the dominant religious experience, is that uh, people come out of the the uh, main uh, mainstream uh, presentations uh, without having found what they wanted and uh, continue to seek out this uh, alternatives to that for the most part um, so um well mindfulness or the mindfulness movement is is getting much more wide acceptance it is still not um the kind of deep practice that would lead to liberation um, and, and I don't think it's actually marketed as something that would do that. And so people that are drawn to that are looking for stress reduction or an increase in happiness or something that supports the, the kind of life that, they're, that they've had. And that, that people that come more toward the deep end of practice are coming uh, either uh, because of uh, the suffering nature of their life or because uh, having pursued uh, and succeeded in a lot of the things that uh, we offer in our culture as uh, meaningful and satisfying uh, don't find that meaning or level of satisfaction that they wanted. I often describe it as a bell curve. At one end of the bell curve are people that don't function well enough to get into the game. And so really the motivation there is to to fix the problems they can get into the game of pursuing things in our culture and at the other end of the spectrum are people who have exceeded very well in getting the the goals that uh, are offered in in our culture and still find that it's not meaningful in a way that eliminates the despair that can be associated with a life that isn't uh, say connected or uh, a life that doesn't support exploration that's meaningful um, I think that uh, 
in some sense, teachers teach what they know or teach what they've had the experience of. And, and, and I have a tendency to prefer teachers who present themselves authentically and, and uh, talk about their own experiences um, and their own motivations and finding uh, their way into uh, this um, path, uh, this path of liberation. I tell this story uh, quite a bit because um, it really sort of encapsulates this. But uh, when I was um, a kid uh, in high school, uh, the White Album came out by the Beatles. I don't know if you have heard it, if you're not old enough to have been around when it came out. And uh, it was quite fantastic, psychedelic, and at the same time, uh, uh, spiritual and uh, sort of uh, as avant-garde as mainstream pop music can get and uh, uh, and uh, the the Beatles went to uh, uh, India and, and sat with the Maharishi and, uh, and and wrote most of the songs that appeared on the albums why they were there meditating and so meditation was this uh, thing that uh, a lot of us tried. So you, you can imagine uh, a 15 year old version of me uh, 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 meditating uh, back in the OH days, I like to say the original hippie days. <laughs> They're back, by the way, uh, if you happen to look outside at any moment, the, the hippie days are back, uh, which I'm quite pleased with. Uh, um, but I didn't really, it didn't really uh, sink in at that point beyond just that sort of cultural uh, surface uh, experience. Um, and I got into the pursuit of uh, ordinary things, ordinary uh, pursuits. You know, you, you come out of high school, there's a, if you're affluent, a direction toward college, if at that time, of course, you could work a minimum wage job and afford an apartment. It's very different now than what it what it was. Uh, um, it wasn't really until I got into New York and during the the AIDS period in New York in the eighties when uh, it was the the experience of being involved in the culture of, of the gay community and um, and just this uh, terrible task of uh, um, caring for people who were dying and, and uh, different than it is now in a way. Um, if you got AIDS, it, it was pretty much 100% that you were going to die horribly in a few months, which is very different than, than COVID. Um, and also, there was a complete hostility from the government toward people who were sick, which is also very different than what it is now uh, with COVID. Um, and so banding together to try and manage that ourselves. But the stress of that was so intense that I uh, needed something beyond what I had been able to put together just in uh, in. Uh, a social life. And so I went into meditation with this really a need to, a real need to be able to come to terms with the, the, 
the daily experience that I was having so that I could operate well enough to, to meet the things that I needed to do or wanted to do. Um, <clears throat> and coming out of that kind of conditioning and the, the kind of crap childhood I had, I, I came um, with a lot of uh, uh, difficulties in uh, uh, trust. We talk about uh, around tier epistemic trust, which is the foundation for the capacity to learn. You need to be able to believe that the person that is teaching you is telling you the truth. And you need to believe that the reason that they're telling you what they're telling you is because their intention is to be helpful to you. And if you don't have those things in place, it's very difficult to take in any information that they're offering you. And uh, one of the things about being a, a gay person, and particularly in for my generation is that when I was growing up and coming of age and, and interested in exploring that, it was illegal and punishable by prison in all 50 states uh, to be caught engaged in that. Um, if you came out most of the time, you were kicked out of your family and cut off. And most of the time you lost your whole social network. And so we taught we the coming out process is quite um, different than it is in some environments here I I would guess there's plenty of places that uh, those conditions are still still apply. Um, <clears throat> so one of the difficulties I had in pursuing meditation and exploring what that might be is that I needed to be able to form relationships with people and form uh, epistemic trust with them so that they could teach me and I had a really challenging time doing that. Um, and I was, uh, I'm, I've always been pretty clever at this so I would set up these elaborate tests that they would have to get through and most of the time uh, they didn't, I, of course I wasn't telling them that it was an elaborate test that they needed to get through, I just set up the circumstances and they would fail and then I would say, aha, they're not trustworthy. And I would move on. Christian? <clears throat> were the tests always, I would never test you, George. Were the, were the tests always uh, unfair or were they actually helpful for you? Um, <clears throat> depends on your point of view, I would guess. I always thought that they were perfectly straightforward. <laughs> no. Um, <clears throat> Mainly it had to do with the kindness and the level of kindness. So I would um, um, I would be late. And then I would track how they responded to that. If they were very kind and understanding about it, then they passed the test. And if they demanded that I actually keep my agreements, <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an occasion. I am. Um, <clears throat> uh, I was doing a. I was assisting in the leading of a of a um, uh, a day long retreat, and uh, it was kind of in the Zen school of things. And um, 
um, even though it was a Theravada class. And um, I, I was uh, the, the, the one who was supposed to ring the bell um, uh, in the transition between sitting meditation and walking meditation, and then ring the bell again uh, in transition from walking meditation to sitting meditation, which was all silent. And um, we walked around the, the, the zendo, and you were supposed to ring the bell at the top of the zendo so that everybody would have time to adjust to sit. And I didn't, uh, I, I had a moment of mind, mindlessness and um, didn't ring the bell until I was on the last side of the zendo. And uh, when we sat down, uh, the meditation teacher said in front of everyone, obviously you shouldn't be ringing the bell, which was enough for me to leave the community permanently. <clears throat> so to give you an idea of that, I think so, maybe some other people might have voted that, but it was too unkind for me. Mm. Is that making sense? Maybe fragile is a word that I, I could apply to myself in those experiences. I was very fragile. And I, there is, um, there's a lot of books that are written about meditation and you can take in um, content from them and sometimes uh, be able to uh, practice it in a way that provides the insights that you need. But I found most of the time that what I really needed was uh, somebody to walk me through it. Um, and that requires this connection to somebody else, this capacity for relationship. One of the other things about my early experience was that I was uh, angry, quite angry. Ang anger was the primary uh, means of emotional regulation that I used. Um, the uh, the experience of being uh, uh, growing up in the way that I did, the experience of uh, um, my time in New York, uh, brittle and angry might be a good way to describe it. Um, but it's very painful to be in, in those kinds of states. And what I wanted to do was to be able to come out of that. And uh, the, uh, I engaged in the usual things. Uh, uh, getting sober, for instance, was one thing. And then uh, engaging in psychotherapy in, in addition to the, the at that time, uh, in the 70s, uh, there wasn't a lot of options for treating addiction in the way that they are now. Essentially, it was a AA, and there was AA and Al-Anon, and that was pretty much it. Uh, there's been a proliferation of programs since then. Uh, I think, what is it, 158 12-step-based uh, programs or something like that. So when I bombed out of the, uh, the community that when I moved to Los Angeles, I first uh, associated with, I, I had a long stretch as a, I like to call it a Dharma orphan, so uh, a student with no teacher, and, and I bought a catalog um, called uh, Buddhism in America, which was actually a, just a collection of advertisements for every meditation center in the country, and I read it 
um, page to page and uh, and I centered in on a couple of ads uh, for different uh, groups and uh, one of the ads and I, I wanted it to be local and so there was really only one choice in Los Angeles which was the Vipassana Support Institute which was Shinzen Young's organization and he had a he had a center in uh, West LA which also doubled as a house that they that he lived in and uh, and so I I um, did what I uh, normally uh, did at the time, which was I went to a lot of events that he offered when he wasn't there so that I could quiz his students to see what kind of person he really was and whether he was really kind or whether there was some kind of nefarious uh, uh, activity happening. And uh, VSI, uh, yeah, uh, Vipassana Sport Institute, it's now Vipassana Sport International when they relocated to Canada. Um, and I started sitting in Shinzen's approach uh, was um, very sort of technical. One of the things that I began to understand about myself and the way that I learn is I need lots and lots of instructions. There's no level of too much instruction really for the way my mind works and Shinzen was very good at at parsing things out in smaller and smaller levels and you could ask him about it and he would explain it and go deep and he was unfailingly kind uh, he's the first uh, meditation teacher I ever encountered that passed all of my uh, my uh, traps including the you know really elaborate ones and uh, and so that was uh, uh wonderful for me being so uh, paranoid and at the same time he uh, was not enmeshing so that there wasn't that sense of intrusion that sometimes happens when the when the boundaries aren't good and the community around him there uh, uh, I had run into issues with other communities where everybody was way much much older than I was and so this this group had people that were my age, which was also a nice thing. And also um, creative people, which was a nice thing. The other thing about Shinzen that I really liked is that he was enlightenment oriented and he believed that you could uh, practice in a way that in this lifetime you could have, as he would say, at least stream entry and then um, go for the long, the long goal. When I when I uh, first moved to Los Angeles in 1992, and and uh, the first uh, in introduction to Vipassana class I went to, the teacher uh, had everybody say what they wanted to get out of the class, and I, um, in a just in a sort of uh, peachy, naive uh, uh, way of being, said I want to be enlightened, and there was a kind of cruel laughter that followed that. And so uh, um, it was very clear that the uh, that that in that group in that uh, culture that enlightenment uh, for householders or even for practitioners was not possible, and and um, that was uh, disappointing. Stas, I don't want to interrupt. I'm on the edge of my seat. Um, 
Well, I, you probably will talk about this, my sense here coming up on the enlightenment piece. My sense is most people are interested in just stress reduction and happiness. And I think once you get on the often bumpy ride to enlightenment, a lot of people want to get off unless you're pursuing it as an exploration, you know, and you have a lot of support to do it. Right. Well, that big bump in the middle of the bell curve, they're not interested. Life is working well enough for them that they don't want the disruption that often comes from that. Um, so I, I get that is also my experience. And I think that um, the group that that functions very well, uh, that comes uh, comes because having gotten everything that they were supposed to get, that was supposed to make for a fulfilling life, didn't end up working for them. And uh, even though they're good at getting goals, they're not, they're not good at exploring things that actually provide that sense of meaning to them. <laughs> um, so I practiced uh, diligently and I began to uh, I, I, I found uh, Shinzen trustworthy enough that I was willing to uh, try the things that he recommended and pursued that. And I had good results in terms of uh, experiences and my, my, my suffering went down quite dramatically. So that became the, the push toward that. Um, But like a lot of things I noticed in the, for instance, in when I was in the 12 step world, I, I applied myself to that and got good results, but then the results, um, um, the progress beyond that beginning place, um, the places I need to go didn't happen. And so I went into a psychotherapy thing. And then um, when that actually didn't produce the, the results I needed, I went into the meditation world. Stas? So one thing I've always wondered is it seems like you've always known how to explore. It just, in the beginning, you would abandon the exploration when it would get too intense. Um, if I reflect on that in terms of a um, attachment strategy, so when you look at attachment, secure people tend to explore pretty well. They tend to understand what's meaningful to them and they tend to put resources into that. I was complexly disorganized. Complexly disorganized people know uh, what uh, has meaning to them and they know how to pr pursue that when they're emotionally regulated, but they're not good at emotionally regulating. and so. Uh, what you have in that constellation are these fits and starts uh, where you're regulated, you're in a good place, and you begin to pursue the thing that you want. But because you aren't able to sustain that for long enough, you don't get much beyond the beginning. Um, the other part about growing up in the way that I did was that I had to keep the things that were really meaningful to me uh, secret. And then that fits really well into the dismissing um, mind state. 
you know what's meaningful to you and, and you you can pursue it uh, if there's space to do that but you don't share it with anyone and it's it's very private um, so that would be the primary exploration the secondary exploration of course is where you're going for things that have high social uh, value high remunerative value or high or power so that you can have resources to transact things and so you're nearly always diverted into th those kinds of uh, activities disorganized people don't function very well so it, it's very minimal uh, the capacity of uh, of life i mean it, you know it's really much more hand to mouth, scraping by, uh, just getting the, the minimum uh, necessary. When you're, when you uh, don't function very well, and you have a hard time, really just getting the minimum, there isn't a lot of time, energy or resources left for the exploration. So you have to get yourself into a good place and then you can begin, but because it's it's impossible to sustain that, uh, those uh, early promising beginnings collapse. Sometimes there's a middle or a little bit, a little part of the middle and but almost no finishes, um, which over the course of a life uh, begins to accumulate disappointment. And that at a certain point you simply don't want to try anymore because the failure will bring uh, disappointment that will resonate with the, the disappointment that you've already accumulated and and so you begin to uh, uh, avoid the exploration um, to avoid the disappointment that comes from failing again um different people different uh, you know attachment strategies explore differently but uh dismissing people tend to be mainly focused on getting resources to transact their needs Those preoccupied people abandon their exploration altogether for uh, proximity and emotional regulation from their their attachment figures is that making sense so um, I tell this story qu quite a bit um, because I think it illustrates um, the, this conundrum. When I first got sober in 1978, uh, after my 90 days, my sponsor at the time said, so you're going to wear the, the cloak of AA loosely around you as you cross the bridge and go back out into life. Uh, and I, I couldn't imagine what I would would do then. Uh, and he said, well, you just go and figure out what you like and go do more of that. And uh, I said, well, how do you do that? And he said, well, what kind of apples do you like? I, 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 I tell this story enough that if you may have heard it, um, said, well, I don't really like apples. They're hard and sour. And he said, well, Granny Smiths are hard and sour. There's lots of apples out there. What other kinds do you like? And I said, those are the only kinds we ever had. 
So he said, you're going to go to the Korean deli, you're going to buy a Granny buy Smith a and one of their apple, you're going to eat them both. And the next day, you're going to go back and you're going to buy the apple that you liked better and another apple. You're going to do that every day until you've gone through all of the apples that are for sale at the Korean deli, which if you were in New York in the 70s, would realize it was like 25 varieties of apples that they sold in Korean delis. And so I did that, and at the end of it, gala apples was the one that I like. But that's the, the the metaphor of exploration. Well, that was actually exploration. But uh, once you begin to understand that the thing about exploration is that most exploration doesn't lead anywhere. And uh, people who understand this about exploration have a resiliency because they know most of it isn't going to turn out. And so they go and explore and see what it is. And if they like something about it, then they pursue that more. And it tends to direct you in this path of meaning that you don't need to know when you start out. You just need to be able to take the next step in the exploration and then be open and allow it to lead you into these places of deeper meaning. And if you uh, develop the skill of doing it, and you're just constantly doing that, life is taking you in these directions that were unknowable to you and yet rich uh, with a sense of meaning. Um, but you have to get yourself in a place where you have the time, energy, and resources to be able to do that. And what often happens uh, when you have some inhibition around uh, exploration is that you build your life in such a way that it doesn't allow for the the really meaningful exploration as a way of, of defending against having to discover that. Uh, the problem, of course, is if you don't explore in a way that's primarily meaningful, then it leads to a kind of despair about life and the difficulty of life which is only exacerbated with aging. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, 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 this is going to be just a whole surprise for you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I love surprises. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very good attitude to have around this. So um, when you begin the practice then, and you're in earnest in trying to understand what it is that the deep insight practice uh, is meant to, to reveal, it's really uh, exploring the nature of your conditioning and how that conditioning uh, causes you to create conceptual reality in a certain way, and uh, pulling apart the, the, the nature of conceptual reality. Uh, so that you can see what's actually happening uh, in each moment. Um, one of the things uh, about my own practice uh, um, is that uh, early on, Shinzen wanted his his uh, his. Um, I guess we would, I would call it intermediate students to start teaching um, because there's a process in, in uh, relaying the, the meditation experiences to other people that uh, causes you to have to 
think about them in a way that brings a, a clarity to them. That if you didn't have to uh, uh, think about them in a way that was descriptive and communicative, you might not understand it as clearly for yourself. So it, it became a, a means to uh, help uh, newcomers that were coming and people were interested in and, and also to be able to further your own uh, understanding of uh, where your practice was or is. Um, and so I began to do that. And that's actually what brought me to teaching the attachment stuff that I do because uh, one of the things to understand is you put yourself out there into the world and the, and uh, the people that see that presentation and resonate with it are drawn to you and they're drawn to you for something. And uh, um, I initially started teaching Shinzen stuff and didn't get much traction with it. And I, I can understand that. Why would you come to me for, to teach, to learn Shinzen stuff when you could go to Shinzen and learn it directly from him? <clears throat> Although uh, I did discover early on that people said to me that the way I described it was easier for them to understand than the way Shinzen described it, which was a real insight in the, to the nature. You um, express yourself and um, people resonate with it. Uh, and somebody else's expresses the same thing, but in the way that they express it, if, if you don't resonate, if you're not able to enmesh with that, um, I was talking about that earlier today, your conditioning um, uh, entangles with other people's conditioning if there's space for that to happen, and if there isn't space for that to happen, you don't entangle. The example that I often use is if you speak English and you encounter somebody who only speaks Japanese, it's much harder to entangle in an intimate way with them because there's no uh, 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 conditioning that matches well enough that you can express uh, yourself in a, in a subtle and nuanced way. Um, Somebody came up to me and said, you know, George, you used to be the angriest person I've ever met, and you're not angry anymore. And that actually is what interests me about how you teach. What I want to know is how can I become less angry? And so I taught a class on overcoming anger. And then somebody came up and said, you know, anger isn't my issue. Fear is my issue. Can you teach a class on fear? So I taught a class on fear. And then uh, somebody came up and said, you know, anger and fear are not my issue. Sadness is my issue. Clean. Uh, you say that anger is a secondary emotion. Um, so when you talked to your class on anger, were you like uh, uh, trying to explore what the primary emotion was or? That anger is a, an emotional regulation strategy. And then what's underneath the anger that you can then come into awarenesses. The, the strategy that I, the strategies that I teach, the investigating self-generated emotion, or stopping afflictive self-generated emotion, quantizing the pool and poison and pain came out of trying to address very dissociative uh, um, structures to the way that I operated in the world. And it was really a part of parsing apart that 
process of dissociation and also um, understanding um, the experience of the present moment and the experience of being lost in thought. And so all of those um, were that were really what that early piece was just the using mindfulness or vipassana meditation to track your thinking processes understanding how that relates to emotion and and then changing it so that you're not having to use anger um, you know we don't when i was doing reading about this initially years ago i guess it's probably 20 years ago or now so now um what I came across over and over again was that people have a, a, a small set of skills to emotionally regulate themselves. They mostly learn them in childhood and they don't really ever update them. Um, they, they said uh, that because the process of learning to emotionally regulate uh, happens in these uh, in, in intimate relationships of parent-child, say, or um, somebody who's close to you, that unless you're in a relationship that you're quite intimate with, you don't have a close enough awareness of how the other person is emotionally regulating, that you can then learn the steps that you need to in order to, to take on that uh, tool. So that uh, what it said was that if people are in, in long-standing intimate relationships, sometimes they can take on an emotional regulation strategy from from their partner they can learn it that way but most of the time we operate with that original grouping that we got from our family systems now if you look at my family system the strategies were not good i mean was, you know anger sadness fear were the the the, the, the main strategies that we had uh it was a, a um you know, hard drinking Irish family and alcohol was uh, probably the biggest regulator that most of the adults in the family used. Um, at some point in my recovery, I made the the alcoholic family tree and, you know, pretty much every branch was a light. <laughs> Is that answering your question? Yes, thank you. So somebody came up to me and said, you know, anger and fear aren't my issues. Sadness is my issue. So I taught a class on sadness. I was teaching these three classes called overcoming anger, overcoming fear, overcoming sadness. And then um, somebody came up to me and said, you know, anger, fear, and sadness aren't my issues. Shame is my issues. Could you teach a class on shame? And this light bulb went off in my head as, I'm just going to teach one big class called Overcoming Difficult Emotions. And I started to teach that class and people came up to me and said, you know, it's actually not the difficult emotions that are a problem. It's the relationships that cause them, which is what uh, opened up the uh, um, the understanding that, oh, this is about relationships. This is about attachment. People are, are uh, people who can form relationships that are supportive, that don't consume uh, everything, uh, have these lives that are more regulated, uh, more even, and that they, 
they then have the energy and the space to explore things that have meaning and so that uh, way of being is is more useful particularly if you want to practice deeply because you need to create time energy and resources that are available for you to pursue uh, the practice um, when I looked around for people to help uh, with attachment repair, so this would be in the mid 90s, there just wasn't anything around uh, for that. And so I, I just began to adapt my own meditation practice uh, and, and, and focus on that. And I did find a lot of relief in that, which actually created um, this space for um, practice, which I think was really useful. So uh, part of this is, uh, and, and, and relating it to the, the, the topic of the evening is, what is it you want to get out of your practice? And how are you going to organize your life in such a way that you have time, energy, and resources uh, available so that you can pursue the practice? And then if you, if you can't do that right now, what's in the way of doing that? And what do you need to do to clear out those obstacles so that you can then begin to pursue it. What I notice about uh, people who have done that is that it is possible to go quite deep into practice and to have uh, insights uh, into the nature of this human conditioning that open up into this place of uh, sacredness, I would call it, and it's coming mainly from practicing with Dan and the way that he talks about it. Before that, I would have described it as engagement, to be fully present and capable of engaging the experience of the present moment without getting sidetracked or derailed by um, conditioning. But then uh, as uh, I engage in these other practices, and that is one thing to understand that you engage in a particular practice and it tends to produce a particular insight. Um, there's a quality of sacredness that arises, which is quite appealing. So there's a question from Stas. I didn't find alcohol or drugs regulating. Does that mean I never learned how? Yes, that's what that means. That it's probably not used in your family system in a way that uh, you learned. And you know what? I would really recommend that you don't learn it. <laughs> So then, um, why don't we do some practice? Any preference for a meta practice or a Vipassana practice? I'd love to do some meta practice. Meta? Yeah. Everybody's good with meta? Um, I do think that uh, it is useful to intentionally develop positivity uh, and that actually in, in the Metavipassana uh, um, um, formulation of teaching, that's actually the first thing that you do. You get a base level of concentration and then you intentionally develop uh, a sense of positivity 
uh, that you can use as a refuge so that if you go into the vipassana side of practice and and encounter things that are distressing or difficult you can withdraw from them and come into uh, the the refuge of the positive states that, that loving kindness tends to produce so let's do it for an easy person and then we can um, practice a little bit for self So any comments or questions on the practice that we just did? Stas? If anybody wants to go first, I, I can hold the question. All right. Go ahead. So in, in your, uh, one of the manuals I'm reading, the instructions say focus on the sensations of the mind state. And since I've known you, you've always said that uh, there's no sensations to meta mind. Um, which manual are you reading? Addiction. Oh. I'm pretty sure I'm referring to the PT aspect. But that would only come after you. Yeah, right. I think that um, uh, um, the sensitivity to people uh, not being able to concentrate very well, so the PT doesn't arise. And then sort of struggling to understand what a mindset is has led me to be more um, forthright about uh, there being no sensations associated with it. Um, but uh, so it's just a development of the languaging of how to teach it because the manual was written five years ago. Yeah, it's very hard to uh, explain something focus on something that has no sensations <laughs> <laughs> well the view is very clear once you pick it up yeah and you can tell whether it's there or not but if you don't if you if you haven't yet discovered that there are views uh, and that uh, uh that you have them all the time and that they distort everything it's it's uh it's a it's a thing um The Sayadaw would say uh, that views have no sensations and that he would recommend that you alternate doing walking practice with eyes open with sitting practice so that you could see the way that uh, conceptual reality was formed and how views affected it. But, um, you know, without uh, that um, option, it's hard to instruct that. Mostly, uh, and particularly now that everything's virtual, it's it's uh, just we're all sitting looking at our screens, <laughs> making sense. Someone else? Um, yeah. Um, thank you. That was great. I. Um... 
I, I think I sat with you for like three and a half years, like every morning and uh, haven't in, in many years. And uh, the, I, I, I don't know if it's the, the memories or whatever the practice came back quite quickly. And when I was, when I was sitting with you then, um, with lots of concentration, I realized that meta came from this part of my brain. Right. Um, is it wrong to, in practice, like to go here or whatever, um, instead of, cause that's where I knew it was or whatever. Um, instead of like directing my attention towards this space, because I know that's where I've experienced it from. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good idea to come up out of the body. And, and that's the same area where my, where the PT arises when I'm concentrated on the state, but, but making sure that you're holding the view. Uh, and then as it, as the concentration develops, the PT arises and then switching to holding the, the sensation rather than the view. Okay. Good enough. Yeah. Someone I was else? kind of, I'm a little tired. I didn't sleep well. So I was like kind of in and out and, but I, yeah. So sometimes it was just tough to focus on the, on the, you know, on the hearing the words and stuff so right yeah the, everything goes in the background except for the view and then holding the view and then as it energizes you notice the pt arising most people ex actually experience it up here the pt and then we just make that the objects it's easier to hold because it has a quality to it that isn't just the view and and you notice in vipassana jhana practice or high concentration states with insight as the object of meditation or uh, um, you go into pt uh, so you practice you attempt to concentrate on an anchor let's say the breath and then once you notice pt arising anywhere in the body you switch to that and the pt is the thing that carries you into the high concentration state it's the same in the metta practice except the PT arises in response to the meta object rather than to the insight object or the, the concentration anchor. I will say that uh, when I was on retreat with you and I actually experienced the, the meta jhana the first time, it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. So, yeah. 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 The Sado calls them bliss bombs. <laughs> I did walk out of that experience out of into that field towards that big tree, which may uh -huh. or might, may not have burned. Oh. And, a, and a huge great horned owl flew over my head. Nice. Like, what is happening here? Like, I, yeah, that's great. At, at La Casa de Maria, where the retreat was, there's a, a, a hundred and twenty year old eucalyptus tree, which is massive. I mean, yeah. It it's not so much that it burned, but it all was washed away in a mudslide. 
Oh. Uh, it's the building where we sat, the meditation is gone. The cafeteria where we ate is gone. The lounge is gone. There's some remnants of the uh, chapel left, but the, the mud was uh, sort of uh, six feet high up in the chapel. And then it washed down and knocked out some of the dormitories. In Pismo, that one? Yeah, up in uh, Montecito, that one. Okay. So, uh, and they didn't have flood insurance, so it wasn't covered by insurance, the damage. Oh, that's terrible. So they've been fundraising for uh, probably almost eight years or so to try and rebuild it. So um, the retreat is sold out, but we do have a waiting list for it in, in case you, you didn't sign up to, for it and you were thinking about it. Um, we have one, uh, the third day of the three-day level one series is not this Saturday, but the following Saturday. We're going to start a level two class on um, January 11th. If you're interested in doing that with mentoring sessions, there's only a, a couple of places left for that. Um, I'm not sure one or one or two left. And then uh, we will be doing a meditation and addiction retreat in uh, January. It's a we well, we always do the addiction retreats as a two day thing, all day Saturday, half a day Sunday. So that's coming up. Um, and then we're going to do another level one uh in this winter um, so that's what's coming up all of that stuff is on the website uh, because we have had so many requests to do the level one retreats on sunday instead of on saturday we're going to do two level ones at the same time one every other week on uh, saturday and one every other week on sunday so that you'll be able to get that um, so that's what's coming up. Take a look on that. I offer this class uh, on a Donna basis. So uh, Donna is the polyword for generosity. So I, I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope you'll make a donation. There's a link to do so on the website. Any amount is uh, useful. And of course, if you, you're not resourced, please come and sit with us. We're happy to support the space for that. Uh, thank you for coming. And uh, I will see you soon, I hope. Bye. Thanks, George.